0: The atmosphere is feeling cold. The yellow sun is getting old. The ozone overflows with radio waves. Astral fears brings the news. The raisin dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves. Radio waves. Radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio waves. waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. If you're wondering why you've just heard a different intro, that's because we're celebrating our first 12 months of Astrophys. So we've reprised our intro from Episode 1, which was posted on 29th of June 2016. Since then, we've had 37 episodes featuring guest astrophysicists, astronomers, rocket scientists, mission scientists and instrument scientists from the UK, Spain, India, Norway, Japan, Russia, Romania, Germany... Canada, the US and Australia. It looks like our diversity and social media policies are working well, for we've featured 22 women astronomers and had well over 8,000 downloads to listeners in more than 50 countries. And today is Thursday the 29th of June 2017. And today we are re-interviewing our very first guest, Robert Arrowsmith, who's leading the construction of a radio telescope for the Astronomical Society of Victoria. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of space science, radio astronomy or optical astronomy. In each episode we'll have a news roundup to wrap up each show. We'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr Ian Musgrave of astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Robert. Hello, Brendan. It's a pleasure today to be speaking again with Robert Arrowsmith. Robert was our first featured guest almost exactly 12 months ago in Episode 1 of Astrophys, where he told us of his early visits to the park's dish and his subsequent work in Linux computing. He is one of the leaders in the radio astronomy arm of the Astronomical Society of Victoria and in episode one he described the work being done at the ASV Leon Moe Radio Observatory which is located in RF Quiet Zone about 90 minutes north of Melbourne in southeast Australia at a place called Heathcote. Now Robert we know that citizen science is going ahead in leaps and bounds and organisations like the ASV are fueling the fire so before we get into the technical aspects of all the things happening up on your radio observatory site at Heathcote can you give us a broad outline of the various activities driven by the ASV astrophotography is only one example you
1: know Brendan as a member of the astronomical society of Victoria and the ASV website editor I get to see some of the fantastic things the society gets involved in the restoration of the Great Melbourne Telescope management of the Melbourne Observatory and the Royal Botanic Gardens, classes for members in construction of telescopes, purchase of a new solar telescope, and of course, ongoing development in our dark sky site in central Victoria. There are two weekend events in March and September that attract over 100 members, and of course, our Christmas Starbecue in December that's open to the public.
0: Okay, great.
1: From a practical science point of view, our members regularly produce some great astronomy. We've had members' photography featured on the NASA Astronomy Picture of the Day website, as well as Discovery of Asteroids.
0: Fantastic. Now, at this time last year, you told us about some of your ongoing projects at the observatory and also some of your long-term projects. Can you give us an update on your enduring projects, Robert?
1: Yeah, our focus over the last few years has been the building of our 8 metre radio astronomy dish. For a long time we were delayed by local government dragging the heels with approval of building plans. Several other projects at our dark sky site were intertwined with approvals, so it greatly affected our progress. In April this year, we finally poured about 20 cubic metres of concrete for our dish foundation and were extremely happy with the result. My own project is the Low Frequency Array, designed to explore the low VHF frequencies between 20 to 50 megahertz. Some of the science there should let us look at atmospheric physics, ionization of the Earth's atmosphere, mapping of the sky, and reception of pulsar emissions with extreme dispersion characteristics. Right. One of our members is building a magnetometer, and another member is completing an ultra-low-frequency receiver designed to receive atmospheric emissions around a few hundred hertz. Electromagnetic waves produced by lightning strikes can travel around the world and sound like a whistle. This will be a fascinating project, and we plan to have the audio from the receiver available through a digital stream on the internet.
0: Fantastic, thanks Robert. Now I've been following your progress and project development of the 8m dish on social media and now can you tell us about this 8m project and its associated instruments that you've been working on this year?
1: Once construction of the dish is complete, we hope to produce some great science. Reception of pulsars, mapping of hydrogen line emissions at one point four gigahertz, measuring the rotation of our galaxy by observing the Doppler effect, and maybe even reception of telemetry from various robotic space missions.
0: Ah, oh, look, there's nothing like hacking spacecraft, Robert. That's <laughs> that sounds fabulous. Now, some great projects here, and the foundations are laid and the cabling's already. Can you tell us about the command and control systems that will drive this antenna?
1: Yeah, sure. We have some design issues we're trying to overcome at the moment. One of the problems is the limited electrical power available to us. At the start, we knew there was going to be trouble when our air conditioner kept tripping the main circuit breaker, which, as it turned out, also caused by moisture building up in some of the extensive power networks. At the moment, we're limited to about 10 amps on our single-phase power circuit. We're looking at using the limited power supply to charge a battery bank and supplement it with solar panels. Oh, yeah. It appears that our power usage will have intermittent peaks, which we can smooth out with the battery storage and inverter system. Yep. We're in a motor drive selection phase at the moment. We've got quotes from suppliers, including gearboxes and drive circuitry. There was some talk of running at 600 volts, but this might prove to be a bit of a challenge for us. (laughs) Yep. The plan is to use a software package called Radio Eyes that is available through radiosky.com. This package works in two parts. The visual part of the software gives a graphical view of the sky and uses a database with locations of sky objects. A point in the sky can be selected for tracking of an object and the tracking position is passed through the internet to the management module that executes commands to a hardware box connected to the motors and positioning sensors.
0: Amazing!
1: Users can then use the graphical interface to make a task list, upload the list to the management module, and automatically point the dish at the required time. Of course, the other important job is to manage the receiver hardware, selecting frequencies, starting and stopping reception of signals, and recording information in different mediums. One of our receivers will be using a software-defined receiver that outputs a stream of data that can be recorded to a computer and analysed at a later date. Typically, the data could also be reduced using fast Fourier transforms that convert from time to frequency, giving a spectrum analysis output.
0: Okay. Let's wind up our propeller heads a little bit further then, Robert, and tell our listeners about the instruments that will be connected to this dish.
1: The dish itself has some impressive characteristics, apart from being 8 metres across. It should be quite usable up to 5 gigahertz without too much loss. Yep. Being a mesh dish, its performance is limited by the size of the mesh holes. Yep. As the wavelength of signals gets smaller, you lose signal through the mesh. That said, it will have good gain at 400 megahertz, which is a radio astronomy allocated frequency for pulsar reception. So we plan for two converters to be used, one to down convert from 400 megahertz to an intermediate frequency, probably 10 megahertz or 70 megahertz, and another from 1420 megahertz to our intermediate frequency. Okay. We will have coaxial cable carrying the intermediate frequency signals from the converters at the dish into our laboratory.
0: That's fabulous. Now, once this dish is commissioned, what will be some of the initial targets you'll go for, and how will you be allocating time for researchers?
1: Commissioning the system, or as they say, first light, will probably consist of performing sun tracking. We should get some good indications from observed signals as to how it tracks by looking for peaking or dipping in levels once we've ironed out the bugs with the tracking system we can move on to fine-tuning the software for remote control
0: okay
1: yep. i envisage a manual control panel in our laboratory giving us the ability to directly point the dish and of course the all-important red switch in case something <laughs> goes wrong yep as i mentioned earlier by using the radio eyes software we can upload task lists to the telescope Oh, yeah. For the foreseeable future, we will take requests from researchers and manage the observing events ourselves. Yep. In the future, we may implement a system similar to the CSIRO ATNF remote access. Yep. We would then become a more mainstream service with a familiar interface.
0: Fantastic. Now, at the Leon Moe Radio Observatory, you have eight instruments streaming live real-time science data to the internet for anyone to have a look at and download. You've got a magnetometer, you've got a gamma ray detector, all-sky camera and a radio Jove receiver and several others. That's fantastic,
1: Robert. Brendan, Uh, a lot of our projects at the observatory were out-of-the-box projects where available software and hardware could easily be set up on computers and the output of these projects could result in graphical data or just JPEG images. Yep. This meant we could simply upload files to the website and display the images on the web pages. Yep. In the case of the weather station, the weather information was output as JPEGs and also a numerical text file with the last 30 days weather. Yep. We've tried to keep that plan as it makes the whole process a lot simpler.
0: And great to introduce people to some wonderful science. Now, it would be a good time now to tell listeners how they can see some of this data. Just go to tinyearl.com forward slash 17 L-E-O-N-M-O-W 17, all lowercase. Now, tell us about your work on the ASV website, please, Rob.
1: Yeah, sure, Brendan. When I started the website for the radio astronomy section over five years ago, we had our own website apart from the ASV. Yep. This made sense at the time since I didn't have access to the main ASV website. I took over managing the ASV website 18 months ago, and one of the first things I did was to move the radio astronomy website into the ASV website. Yep. Some new features were added during the move, and overall, I'm really pleased with the outcome. The Leon Mao Radio Observatory web pages are under the About Us menu tab on the ASV website, or just go to asv.org.au/slash LMRO underscore home.
0: Excellent. Now, will this 8-metre dish also stream to the web?
1: Brendan, in some respects, we'll be able to make remote access to the dish available. I hope to have real-time spectrum data at 1.4 GHz available. We may just leave the dish pointed in one position, called a drift scan, and as the sky moves across, the output of the receiver will display on the website using some clever Java software. great i'm a big believer in giving people some exciting things to see on the website
0: and that's certainly the case and now listeners might better understand as a result of this robert how citizen science is really accelerating now the microphone is all yours rob and we invite you to give us your favorite rant or rave about astronomy or science or outreach or education it's all yours
1: Thanks, Brendan. Well, I guess my biggest disappointment is in the amount of money that's been made available to the sciences in Australia. As we all know, the CSIRO had its funding cut severely. We've had events like the Parks Radio Telescope Visitor's Day cancelled because they were lacking funds. I think what we need in Australia is a much bigger focus on especially science in schools. I note that recently year seven students in Victoria are now going into astronomy. The state government has put astronomy onto the curriculum for Year 7, so the ASV has actually been holding some astronomy nights at schools around Melbourne, so it's great to see that we're getting out there with telescopes and showing kids what's up in the night sky, because to tell you the truth, Brendan, most people out there have never even seen a planet through a telescope before. For instance, we've had some fantastic events at ScienceWorks where we've had the Astronomy and Light Festival and there's one coming up again later this year, which is well worth looking at. And at those sort of events, the ASV members come along with their telescopes and set them up for people to actually view the night sky through. And last year at the Astronomy and Light Festival, we had over 1,200 people attend the night. Fantastic. I know. <laughs> so I guess, Brendan, we need to see a lot more science in schools, not specifically astronomy, but it's great to see that it's it's now becoming part of the curriculum. I personally love science and astronomy and, of course, radio. I'm a amateur radio operator as well, so being a ham radio operator, I get to play with radio at the same time as playing with astronomy when I'm up at (laughs) Teethcote.
0: And that's where radio astronomy started, Rob. Well, that's fantastic, Rob. It's wonderful the work that you and the ASV are doing to get those young people involved in science and specifically involved in astronomy. It's fantastic.
1: Thanks, Brendan. I really appreciate your supporting us on your show. I hope that in the future we have a really fantastic radio astronomy site at Heathcote that people can come and visit and, and actually see what we do up there.
0: Well, thank you very much, Rob. It's been fantastic speaking with you again.
1: Thanks, Brendan. It's been really good to catch up with you and I have really enjoyed our conversation. That was
0: Rob Smith. And the ASV 8-metre dish. Next up, Dr Ian Musgrave and what's up in the night sky? (whistles) Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking to you again, Ian. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky
2: this week is, if you haven't been watching the sky, it's guess what? It's Jupiter and Saturn again.
0: At least in the <laughs> sky. And a new moon, so we've got nice dark skies at the moment.
2: Nice dark skies, although that won't last for very long because the Moon will soon join us on the 1st of July, which is coming up fairly shortly. The waxing Moon will be very close to Jupiter. It'll look look very nice. The pair will be close enough that if, you know, wide-field telescope eyepiece, you might get Jupiter and the top of the Moon together, whereas they'll look very close in binoculars and will look very close just to the unaided eye but it'll be quite pleasantly close. So you'll see something very pretty. And over the next few days, the waxing moon will head towards Saturn, although it won't reach it for some time. So you'll just have Jupiter and Saturn. And then on the 1st of July, Jupiter and the moon will be relatively close. So that will be quite nice. Very good. As always, if you're looking through a telescope or binoculars, you'll be able to see the dance of the moons. The moons will look very nice. There's no really spectacular Jupiter-Moon events in the next few days, but even so, there'll be some very nice patterns as the moons move backwards and forwards. Very good. Saturn was at opposition back on the 15th. Even though it's past opposition, Saturn will still be looking very nice in the morning. Sorry, very nice all night long. It'll look nice in the morning too, but it's going to be starting to, to set. Because Saturn is just around about opposition, it means you see it for almost the entire night so it's rising just around about sunset and setting just about sunrise but it's best when it's highest above the horizon about 10 pm that will be a very convenient time You don't have to wait up until the wee hours of the night so around about 10 pm saturn will be at its highest and that will make very good observations saturn reasonably high above the horizon Saturn's also very close to the centre of the Milky Way, at least in visual terms, but it's sitting almost on top of one of the dark rifts, the dust lanes that pass through the Milky Way. Um, so it's, it's sitting just above one of the dust lanes. The whole field around there, even though Saturn's not sitting right next to anything really amazing, that whole field is full of things. So if you just hover around and you'll see some very nice objects. So Saturn's an excellent object in a small telescope. You can still see Saturn's rings. or if you want to see something like the Cassini division, you need a reasonably, a reasonably sized telescope to give you good resolution. But otherwise, just even a small telescope will be very worthwhile. In the morning, the skyline is dominated by Venus to the east. You'll be able to see Venus. It's quite literally the brightest object in the sky at the moment, in the morning sky, uh, the moon being brighter naturally. Venus is the brightest object in the sky at the moment. But what's going to be interesting is, if followed over the next few weeks, You'll see that below Venus, off to one side, is the compact group of stars called the Pleiades, and a bit below it off to the right is the compact A-shaped group of stars called the Hyades. The brightest star of the Hyades that anchors at the bottom of the the A or v shape, depending if you're in the northern or southern hemisphere, is is the bright red star Aldebaran. If you watch over the coming weeks, Venus is going to start moving towards uh, Aldebaran, It'll pass effectively between the Pleiades and the uh, Hyades. And towards the end of the week, Venus will be close enough to the A shape of the Hyades to form a second eye for Taurus the Bull. The Hyades, of course, forms the head of the constellation Taurus the Bull, and Aldebaran forms one of its eyes. So towards the end of the week, you should be able to see Venus moving into position to make it a second eye for Taurus the ball. And then the following week, you'll be able to see Venus close to Palabaran, and that will be really spectacular. Very good. One thing that's missing from this description is the fleet planet Mercury. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, Mercury and Venus were making some very nice patterns together in the morning sky. Mercury is now very close to the Sun, but it will start coming back. Now, this apparition of Mercury is going to be very good for the Southern Hemisphere. And for us in the Southern Hemisphere, it will be the best time to see Mercury in the evening sky this year. For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm sorry, because of the way the ecliptic is angled in the North and the South, Mercury will just skim across your horizon and not do anything particular. But starting towards the end of this week and going into next week, of course, as this is this covers about uh, two weeks' uh, worth of time, starting about the middle of this week, going into next week, you'll begin to see Mercury coming above the western horizon, and it will be travelling quite nicely. It's heading towards the bright star of Regulus in the constellation of Leo.
0: Yep.
2: So start looking about half an hour after sunset, and we'll begin to see Mercury coming out of the twilight over in the west and just watch over the next few days and you'll see Mercury really rising and getting much brighter heading towards the bright star Regulus. Regulus is very distinctive. If you are looking towards the west, the brightest star in the west is the bright star Sirius in Canis Majorus, and then a little bit over from that is the bright star Procyon in Canis Minor and then if you're looking up to your right from uh, Procyon, the next bright star you come to will be Regulus and Regulus forms the anchors, what's called the Sickle of Leo, this curved grouping of stars and Mercury is heading directly for the Sickle of Leo and Regulus itself and so it will look very nice in the coming fortnight.
0: Fantastic. Before I ask you about the tangent for this week, I did see a fairly brilliant image of Saturn by Damien Peach went online this week. Yes, it's
2: probably the best ever Earth-based photograph of Saturn was taken at Pic uh, observatory and under exceptionally, uh, exceptional seeing conditions. And the, the image is just stunning with the, the amount of detail and the clarity. Yes, it, it was taken by Damien Peach, but it required a collaboration with a professional observatory, the Pic Observatory, and just waiting for the right conditions to get that image of Saturn we can still get quite reasonable images of Saturn. You have to really wait for good atmospheric conditions. You have to wait for the skies to be very still and have Saturn at a reasonably high level above the horizon so that you don't have the horizon interfering with it. For those of us in the southern hemisphere, these conditions are pretty well ideal now. Saturn is reasonably high above the horizon and for us, it's winter. The skies are typically clear typically fairly still, so all those amateur astronomers who are thinking of imaging Saturn, now's a really, really good time. In the northern hemisphere, of course, it's summer, and in summer it tends to involve a lot more atmospheric turbulence, so it's a bit harder to image Saturn during summer.
0: Very good. And Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week? Yes, yeah, I do, and this follows on from the tangent we were discussing
2: last week where we talked about ringed the world's and uh, Larry Niven's science fiction of Ringworld. Larry Niven wrote a number of uh, science fiction stories, and one of his science fiction stories involved starships which jumped between uh, gates between worlds. In his story of Motan God's Eye, one of the gates was inside the atmosphere of a star. So they had to actually dive into the star to get to the gate to jump to its other planet, the, the world of the Motis. And what's been recently discovered is a very interesting binary star that rejoices in the name WD1202. It sounds like something you spray on your car to get it going in the mornings, loosen rusted uh, nuts. But WD102 is a very interesting star. It's a white dwarf with a brown dwarf companion. Or brown dwarfs are basically failed stars, they didn't have quite enough mass to fuse. However, what's really interesting about this? is that it's a variable star where the bright white dwarf is occasionally eclipsed by the brown dwarf. It's yep. a so very deep drop in brightness when the brown dwarf passes the front. It also has a very unusual curve because the brown dwarf is orbiting so close that it actually uh, is orbiting something on the order of every 71 minutes. Wow. So that's, that, that's really, very fast and really, very close. And so the light curve is interesting because the light the white dwarf lights up portions of the brown dwarf, which can't produce light by itself. And so you have this interesting curve where at various parts of the orbit the brown dwarf is lit up by the white dwarf and so it's brighter. And then when it moves into what is effectively crescent phase, so to speak, the light curve drops off and then it moves in front of the of the white dwarf and the white dwarf light blocks out. Despite the fact that it's got a very interesting light curve and it's it's a, a binary where The brown dwarf is really quite close to its star and it's very, very short period. Uh, 71 minutes. That's, 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 we're talking really short period orbits, which means that it must be close enough for the gravity of the white dwarf to start peeling away portions of the brown dwarf. But what's really interesting, and why I introduced it with the uh, story of uh, Larry Niven's Smoke and God's Eye, is that the brown dwarf had at some time had to be inside the primary star, W1202. So if you are aware of the life cycles of stars, as a normal star like our Sun begins to use up its fuel, it begins to expand into a, a, a red giant as the hydrogen fuel runs out. Now, as it expands, the atmosphere moves out. So, for example, the Aldebaran, which we were just talking about, this the star to which Venus will be will apparently become very close in the sky, yes. uh, its atmosphere would, move, would be somewhere out around about where Mars would be. So what, what has happened to the, the original star, the original star has burnt up all its fuel, its outer atmosphere has puffed up, and W the uh, brown dwarf, must have been orbiting very close. Uh, we've talked about the exoplanets, where you have these Jupiter-sized exoplanets screaming around their central star, and very, very close, in, closer than Mercury. And so what must have happened is that during the expansion phase, the atmosphere of the stars that went into red giant phase would have come out and enveloped the brown dwarf. Is this coming from Kepler? No, this is not coming from Kepler. This is coming from the
0: SDSS survey. Well, thank you very much, Ian Musgrave.
2: Thank you very much, Brendan, and to everyone else out there, I say keep your eyes peeled and keep looking to the skies.
0: Here is the Astrophys News and our first report is a press release from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. VLBA reveals closest pair of supermassive black holes. Astronomers using the National Science Foundation's Very Long Baseline Array, the VLBA, radio telescope, have found the closest pair of supermassive black holes ever discovered in the universe, a duo of monsters that together are more than 150 million times more massive than the Sun and closer together than the Earth and the bright star Vega. These two giant black holes are only about 24 light years apart and that's more than a hundred times closer than any pair found before, said Cristina Rodriguez of the University of New Mexico and Simon Bolivar University in Venezuela. Black holes are concentrations of mass with gravity so strong that not even light can escape them. This black hole pair is in the center of a galaxy of called 0402 plus 379, what a great name, some 750 million light years from Earth. Astronomers presume that each of the supermassive black holes was once at the core of a separate galaxy. Then the two galaxies collided, leaving the black holes orbiting each other. The black holes orbit each other once every 150,000 years. If two black holes like these were to collide... That event would create the type of strong gravitational waves that physicists hope to detect with instruments now under construction, said Gregory Taylor of UNM. The physicists will need to wait, though. The astronomers calculate that the black holes won't collide for about a billion billion years, but there are some things that might speed that up a little bit, Taylor remarked. For this study, we needed the ultra-sharp radio vision of the VLBA, particularly at the high radio frequencies of 22 and 43 gigahertz, to get the detail needed to show that these objects are indeed a pair of black holes. The VLBA is a continent-wide system of 10 radio telescope antennas. It provides the greatest ability to see fine detail, called resolving power, of any telescope in astronomy. Next up, a letter to the editor in Astronomy and Astrophysics Journal: The inhomogeneous submillimeter atmosphere of Betelgeuse. Lead author is Eamon O'Gorman from Ireland. Now, you would have had to been living under a rock or an asteroid not to have seen this amazing image of Betelgeuse. It's been zipping around the internet all week. Some of the subheadings for this image say things like the visible surface of Betelgeuse is not uniform. Well, it appears to be a picture of Betelgeuse, a red supergiant situated 650 light years away in the constellation Orion. It's 1,400 times bigger than our sun and a billion times the volume. So it makes an ideal target for the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, in Chile, which is partly run by the ESO, the European Southern Observatory. However, as often is the case, things aren't as they seem. That wonderful orange and yellow and white image showing a bulge out to one side is certainly an amazing image of a star. However, it's not what you would see if you were closer to the star because that image has been constructed from radio waves rather than light waves. Now the best explanation of this observation has come from Phil Plait, the bad astronomer. And if you want to go and read his excellent explanation of the observations of Betelgeuse, then go to tinyurl.com forward slash Alma Plate lowercase, all one word, A-L-M-A-P-L-A-I-T. And that's the news. See you in two weeks, when we're talking with Richard Stevenson, who is the Operations Supervisor at Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex at Tidbin Billa. Richard talks to dozens of robotic spacecraft. Radio Wave!